Ever since I was a boy, when my father sat me down on his lap and told me about our ancestors and how they came from Spain to Nicaragua and how they fought in every war and had great victories. And ever since he also told me about the Founding Fathers and the generation that won the War of Independence, I've always loved stories, stories of heroes, stories of epic triumphs. We might say that it's part and parcel of the American identity to collect heroes. It's part of our idealism, part of our approach to life in which we seek to reach pinnacles. We seek to emulate greatness. We seek to be great. Now two years in Great Britain as an American expatriate, I've come to comprehend a really significant difference between Americans and the British. Americans push for an ideal. The British have a sort of cynicism, a sort of resolution about there not being greatness in the world. They've seen too many tragedies. They've seen too many failures to hope, to aspire, to dream. Now, these are stereotypes, and there are exceptions, of course, to the stereotypes, but I have found a sad failure to hope, a sad refusal to idealize and aspire. I think it's a consequence of a change in education, a change in what we've been teaching children for about, I don't know, 40 or 50 years. We've taken history from them. We've taken the great mythology and stories of this great little island from them. And what we've replaced that with is a crummy set of facts or worse, stories about how we should be ashamed of what this island has done in two millennia. Well, I'll have none of that. And this podcast is dedicated and committed to recovering that lost patrimony, to giving people here on this island the opportunity to rediscover what has made them great and to aspire to be great again. So join me as I try to lend some American idealism to my British cousins. You've been stripped of your history taught to be ashamed of your glorious past. Your great patrimony, your great inheritance has been stolen, but not destroyed. We can recover it. 
This little island of heroes can rise again. This is the Albion Phoenix. A friend of mine pointed out a book that was written for children back in 1905, children of this island, called Our Island Story by Henrietta Elizabeth Marshall. The book is well known in some quarters and unknown in most. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read from sections. This is going to be a multi-part podcast series. Where I'm going to read from sections from the book because so many of you have not even heard of it, much less read it. So that you can understand, get a beginning, get an initial taste of what's been lost and what our task is in terms of recovery. So I'll begin with the preface. What a funny letter, Daddy, said Spen as he looked at the narrow envelope which had just arrived and listened to the crackle of the thin paper. Do you think so, said Daddy? It is from home. From home, said Spen, laughing. Why, Daddy, this is home. I mean, from the old country, Spen. The old country, Daddy, said Veda, leaving her dolls and coming to lean against her father's knee. The old country? What do you mean? I mean, the island in the west to which we belong, and where I used to live, said Daddy. But this is an island, a great big one, Mother says, so how can we belong to a little island, asked Spen. Well, we do. At least the big island and the little island belong to each other. Oh, Daddy, do splain yourself. You are not splaining yourself at all, said Vida. Well, said Daddy with a sigh, long, long ago. Oh, said Spen, it's a story. And he settled himself to listen. Yes, said Daddy, it's a story and a very long one, too. I think I must ask someone else to tell it to you. And Daddy did ask someone else. And here is the story as it was told to Spen and Vida. I hope it will interest not only the children in this big island, but some of the children in the little island in the west, too. I must tell you, though, that this is not a history lesson, but a storybook. There are many facts in school histories that seem to children to belong to lessons only. Some of these you will not find here. But you will find some stories that are not to be found in your school books. Stories which wise people say are only fairy tales and not history. But it seems to me that they are part of our island story and ought not to be forgotten any more than those stories about which there is no doubt. So, although I hope you will not put this book beside your school books, but quite at the other end of the shelf, beside Robinson Crusoe and a Noah's Ark geography, I hope, too, that it will help you to like your school history books better than ever, and that, 
when you grow up, you will want to read for yourselves the beautiful big histories which have helped me to write this little book for little people. Then, when you find out how much has been left untold in this little book, do not be cross, but remember that, when you were very small, you would not have been able to understand things that seem quite simple and very interesting to you as you grow older. Remember, too, that I was not trying to teach you, but only to tell a story. And this is what I was saying in the beginning, is that in history classes, not only have we stripped the element of the heroic, of the virtuous, not only have we stopped talking about people that are worth emulating, but we've stopped telling stories. We asked, we asked children to remember dates and persons and figures and completely turn our back to the long history in humanity of storytelling. And to begin to piece together this lost patrimony, we must tell stories again. It begins with storytelling. And so, this author and the preface hits it on the head and also cautions and, and talks about mythology and the idea that while some things are in the foggy past, the foggy realm of the uncertain. And sadly, in an effort to make history a sort of science, because after all, while we've jettisoned heroic figures from the past, military figures, kings, statesmen, and the like, we've that's created a vacuum and what has what has come into that vacuum while we now admire scientists society loves scientists today and there's nothing wrong with scientists per se but they've seemed to have attained a sort of heroic status einstein feynman oppenheimer and even the scientists of our day. We love scientists and we want to be like them, Darwin. We want to be the ones to discover new aspects of reality. That is worth aspiring to. And so all fields of study seem to have been infected by this science envy. We've birthed social sciences, quote-unquote, and even history has armed itself with instruments and methods that are scientific, quote-unquote. So what has that done that has atomized, that has factualized, quote-unquote, history? But with history, as any of the old historians, any of the old storytellers will tell you, there's an element of uncertainty. And uncertainty isn't a pleasant thing in science. All uncertainties must be wiped out. But with history, that isn't the point. The point isn't to wipe out uncertainties in the story. The point is to convey 
a moral paradigm to convey ideals. And so let's begin with the first chapter of this fine little book. The title of this first chapter is The Stories of Albion and Brutus. Once upon a time, there was a giant called Neptune. When he was quite a tiny boy, Neptune loved the sea. All day long he played in it, swimming, diving, and laughing gleefully as the waves dashed over him. As he grew older, he came to know and love the sea so well that the sea and the waves loved him too, and acknowledged him to be their king. At last people said he was not only king of the waves, but god of the sea. Neptune had a very beautiful wife who was called Amphitrite. He had also many sons. As each son became old enough to reign, Neptune made him king over an island. Neptune's fourth son was called Albion. When it came to his turn to receive a kingdom, a great council was called to decide upon an island for him. Now Neptune and Amphitrite loved Albion more than any of their other children. This made it very difficult to choose which island should be his. The mermaids and the mermen, as the wonderful people who live in the sea are called, came from all parts of the world with news of beautiful islands. But after hearing them out, Neptune and Amphitrite would shake their heads and say, No, that is not good enough for Albion. At last, a little mermaid swam into the pink and white coral cave in which the council was held. She was more beautiful than any mermaid who had yet come to the council. Her eyes were merry and honest, and they were blue as the sky and the sea. Her hair was as yellow as fine gold, and in her cheeks a lovely pink came and went. When she spoke, her voice sounded as clear as a bell and as soft as a whisper of the waves as they ripple upon the shore. O oh, Father Neptune, she said, let Albion come to my island. It is a beautiful little island. It lies like a gem in the bluest of waters. There the trees and the grass are green, the cliffs are white, and the sands are golden. There the sun shines and the birds sing. It is a land of beauty, mountains and valleys, broad lakes and swift-flowing rivers, all are there. Let Albion come to my island. Where is this island? said Neptune and Amphitrite both at once. They thought it must indeed be a beautiful land if it were only half as lovely as the little mermaid said. Oh, come, and I will show it to you, replied she. Then she swam away in a great hurry to show her beautiful island, and Neptune, Amphitrite, and all the mermaids and mermen followed. It was a wonderful sight to see them as they swam along. Their white arms gleamed in the sunshine, and their golden hair floated out over the water like fine seaweed. Never before had so many of the sea folk been gathered together at one place, and the noise of their tails flapping through the water brought all the little fishes and great sea monsters out, eager to know what was happening. They swam and swam until they came to the little green island with the white cliffs and yellow sands. As soon as it came in sight, Neptune raised himself on a big wave, and when he saw the little island lying before him like a beautiful gem in the blue water, just as the mermaid had said, he cried out in joy, This is the island of my love. 
Albion shall rule it, and Albion shall be, shall it shall be called. <coughs> so Albion took possession of the little island, which until then had been called Samothia, and he changed its name to Albion, as Neptune had said should be done. For seven years Albion reigned over his little island. At the end of that time he was killed in a fight with the hero Hercules. This was a great grief to Neptune and Amphitrite. But because of the love they bore to their son Albion, they continued to love and watch over the little green island which was called by his name. For many years after the death of Albion, the little island had no ruler. At last, one day there came, sailing from the far-off city of Troy, a prince called Brutus. He, seeing the fair island, with white cliffs and golden sands, landed with all his mighty men of war. There were many giants in the land in those days, but Brutus fought and conquered them. He made himself king, not only over Albion, but over all the islands which lay around. He called them the Kingdom of Britain, or Britannia, after his own name, Brutus, and Albion he called Great Britain because it was the largest of the islands. Although after this the little island was no longer called Albion, Neptune still loved it. When he grew old and had no more strength to rule, he gave his scepter to the islands called Britannia, for we know Britannia rules the waves. This is a story of many thousand years ago. Some people think it is only a fairy tale. But however that may be, the little island is still sometimes called Albion, although it is nearly always called Britain. In this book you will find the story of the people of Britain. The story tells how they grew to be a great people, till the little green island set in the lonely sea was no longer large enough to contain them all. Then they sailed away over the blue, the blue waves to far distant countries. Now the people of the little island possess lands all over the world. These lands from the empire of Greater Britain. Many of these lands are far, far larger than the little island itself. Yet the people who live in them still look back lovingly to the little island from which they or their fathers came and call it home. That's the first chapter. And I love how there's mythology here and there's there isn't embarrassment over the fact that it's uncertain. But the story is magnificent. The story connects this island to Troy, to Homer's Troy, to Brutus, a descendant of Hector, perhaps. Who makes his way across the Mediterranean and lands on the island. Now, that may or may not be true, but what a wonderful connection. Look at the island. Look at the language. Look at the architecture. It is full-on Greco-Roman. The Dorian columns. The whitewashed statues the Latinized influences, 
the vast amounts of literature that is written firstly in Latin and then translated to English. The island cannot deny its Greco-Roman roots. And in binding it and establishing a foundation in Troy, it establishes its credentials as part and parcel of Western civilization. If you've liked what you've heard, join me for the subsequent podcast in which I will be, again, continuing through this wonderful little text and trying to illuminate the magnificent story of this island. <laughs>